This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Red Abras. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 4, Chapter 7. Enjoy the honey-heavy dew of slumber. Thou hast no figures, nor no fantasies, which busy care draws in the brains of men. Therefore thou sleepest so sound. Shakespeare The Count, who had slept little during the night, rose early, and, anxious to speak with Ludovico, went to the north apartment. But the outer door having been fastened on the preceding night, he was obliged to knock loudly for admittance. Neither the knocking or his voice was heard, but considering the distance of this door from the bedroom, and that Ludovico, wearied with watching, had probably fallen into a deep sleep, the Count was not surprised on receiving no answer, and leaving the door he went down to walk in his grounds. It was a grey autumnal morning. The sun, rising over Provence, gave only a feeble light, as his rays struggled through the vapours that ascended from the sea, and floated heavily over the wood-tops, which were now varied with many a mellow tint of autumn. The storm was past, but the waves were yet violently agitated, and their course was traced by long lines of foam, while not a breeze fluttered in the sails of the vessels near the shore that were weighing anchor to depart. The still gloom of the hour was pleasing to the Count, and he pursued his way through the woods, sunk in deep thought. Emily also rose at an early hour, and took her customary walk along the brow of the promontory that overhung the Mediterranean. Her mind was now not occupied with the occurrences of the chateau, and Valancourt was the subject of her mournful thoughts, whom she had not yet taught herself to consider with indifference though her judgment constantly reproached her for the affection that lingered in her heart after her esteem for him was departed. Remembrance frequently gave her his parting look and the tones of his voice when he had bade her a last farewell, and some accidental associations now recalling these circumstances to her fancy, with peculiar energy she said bitter tears to the recollection. Having reached the watch-tower, she seated herself on the broken steps, and in melancholy dejection watched the waves, half hid in vapour, as they came rolling towards the shore, and threw up their light spray round the rocks below. Their hollow murmur and the obscuring mists that came in wreaths up the cliffs gave a solemnity to the scene, which was in harmony with the temper of her mind, and she sat, given up to the remembrance of past times, till this became too painful, and she abruptly quitted the place. On passing the little gate of the watch-tower, she observed letters, engraved on the stone postern, which she paused to examine, and though they appeared to have been rudely cut with a pen-knife, the characters were familiar to her. At length, recognizing the handwriting of Valancourt, she read with trembling anxiety the following lines entitled, Shipwreck till solemn midnight on this lonely steep beneath this watch-tower's desolated wall where mystic shapes the wanderer appall i rest and view below the desert deep 
as through tempestuous clouds the moon's cold light gleams on the wave viewless the winds of night with loud mysterious force the billows sweep and sullen roar the surges far below in the still pauses of the gust i hear the voice of spirits rising sweet and slow and oft among the clouds their forms appear but hark what shriek of death comes in the gale and in the distant ray what glimmering sail bends to the storm now sinks the note of fear ah wretched mariners no more shall they unclose his cheering eye to light ye on your way from these lines it appeared that valancourt had visited the tower that he had probably been here on the preceding night for it was such an one as they described and that he had left the building very lately since it had not long been light and without light it was impossible these letters could have been cut it was thus even probable that he might be yet in the gardens as these reflections passed rapidly over the mind of emily they called up a variety of contending emotions that almost overcame her spirits but her first impulse was to avoid him and immediately leaving the tower she returned with hasty steps towards the chateau as she passed along she remembered the music she had lately heard near the tower with the figure which had appeared and in this moment of agitation she was inclined to believe that she had then heard and seen valancourt but other recollections soon convinced her of her error on turning into a thicker part of the woods she perceived a person walking slowly in the gloom at some little distance and her mind engaged by the idea of him she started and paused imagining this to be valancourt the person advanced with quicker steps and before she could recover recollection enough to avoid him he spoke and she then knew the voice of the count who expressed some surprise on finding her walking at so early an hour and made a feeble effort to rally her on her love of solitude but he soon perceived this to be more a subject of concern than of light laughter and changing his manner affectionately expostulated with emily on thus indulging unavailing regret who though she acknowledged the justness of all he said could not restrain her tears while she did so and he presently quitted the topic expressing surprise at not having yet heard from his friend the advocate at avignon in answer to the questions proposed to him respecting the estates of the late madame montoni he with friendly zeal endeavoured to cheer emily with hopes of establishing her claim to them while she felt that the estates could now contribute little to the happiness of a life in which valancourt had no longer an interest when they returned to the chateau emily retired to her apartment and count de villefort to the door of the north chambers this was still fastened but being now determined to arouse ludovico he renewed his calls more loudly than before after which a total silence ensued and the count finding all his efforts to be heard ineffectual at length began to fear that some accident had befallen ludovico whom terror of an imaginary being might have deprived of his senses he therefore left the door with an intention of summoning his servants to force it open some of whom he now heard moving in the lower part of the chateau to the count's inquiries whether they had seen or heard ludovico they replied in affright that not one of them had ventured on the north side of the chateau since the preceding night he sleeps soundly then said the count 
and is at such a distance from the outer door which is fastened that to gain admittance to the chambers it will be necessary to force it bring an instrument and follow me the servants stood mute and dejected and it was not till nearly all the household were assembled that the count's orders were obeyed in the meantime dorothy was telling of a door that opened from a gallery leading from the great staircase into the last anteroom of the salon and this being much nearer to the bedchamber it appeared probable that ludovico might be easily awakened by an attempt to open it thither therefore the count went but his voice was as ineffectual at this door as it had proved at the remoter one and now seriously interested for ludovico he was himself going to strike upon the door with the instrument when he observed its singular beauty and withheld the blow it appeared on the first glance to be of ebony so dark and close was its grain and so high its polish but it proved to be only of larch wood of the growth of province then famous for its forests of larch the beauty of its polished hue and of its delicate carvings determined the count to spare this door and he returned to that leading from the back staircase which being at length forced he entered the first anteroom followed by henry and a few of the most courageous of his servants the rest awaiting the event of the inquiry on the stairs and landing-place all was silent in the chambers through which the count passed and having reached the salon he called loudly upon lodovico after which still receiving no answer he threw open the door of the bedroom and entered the profound stillness within confirmed his apprehensions for ludovico for not even the breathings of a person in sleep were heard and his uncertainty was not soon terminated since the shutters being all closed the chamber was too dark for any object to be distinguished in it the count bade a servant open them who as he crossed the room to do so stumbled over something and fell to the floor when his cry occasioned such panic among the few of his fellows who had ventured thus far that they instantly fled and the count and henry were left to finish the adventure henry then sprung across the room and opening a window shutter they perceived that the man had fallen over a chair near the hearth in which ludovico had been sitting for he sat there no longer nor could anywhere be seen by the imperfect light that was admitted into the apartment the count seriously alarmed now opened other shutters that he might be enabled to examine further and ludovico not yet appearing he stood for a moment suspended in astonishment and scarcely trusting his senses still his eyes glancing on the bed he advanced to examine whether he was there asleep no person however was in it and he proceeded to the oriel where everything remained as on the preceding night but ludovico was nowhere to be found the count now checked his amazement considering that ludovico might have left the chambers during the night overcome by the terrors which their lonely desolation and the recollected reports concerning them had inspired yet if this had been the fact the man would naturally have sought society and his fellow-servants had all declared that they had not seen him the door of the outer room also had been found fastened with the key on the inside it was impossible therefore for him to have passed through that and all the outer doors of this suite were found on examination to be bolted and locked with the keys also within them the count being then compelled to believe 
that the lad had escaped through the casements next examined them but such as opened wide enough to admit the body of a man were found to be carefully secured either by iron bars or by shutters and no vestige appeared of any person having attempted to pass them neither was it probable that ludovico would have incurred the risk of breaking his neck by leaping from a window when he might have walked safely through a door the count's amazement did not admit of words but he returned once more to examine the bedroom where was no appearance of disorder except that occasioned by the late overthrow of the chair near which had stood a small table and on this ludovico's sword his lamp the book he had been reading and the remnant of his flask of wine still remained at the foot of the table too was the basket with some fragments of provision and wood henry and the servant now uttered their astonishment without reserve and though the count said little there was a seriousness in his manner that expressed much it appeared that ludovico must have quitted these rooms by some concealed passage for the count could not believe that any supernatural means had occasioned this event yet if there was any such passage it seemed inexplicable why he should retreat through it and it was equally surprising that not even the smallest vestige should appear by which his progress could be traced in the rooms everything remained as much in order as if he had just walked out by the common way the count himself assisted in lifting the arras with which the bedchamber salon and one of the anterooms were hung that he might discover if any door had been concealed behind it but after a laborious search none was found and he at length quitted the apartments having secured the door of the last antechamber the key of which he took into his own possession he then gave orders that strict search should be made for ludovico not only in the chateau but in the neighborhood and retiring with henry to his closet they remained there in conversation for a considerable time and whatever was the subject of it henry from this hour lost much of his vivacity and his manners were particularly grave and reserved whenever the topic which now agitated the count's family with wonder and alarm was introduced on the disappearing of ludovico baron st foix seemed strengthened in all his former opinions concerning the probability of apparitions though it was difficult to discover what connection there could possibly be between the two subjects or to account for this effect otherwise than by supposing that the mystery attending ludovico by exciting awe and curiosity reduced the mind to a state of sensibility which rendered it more reliable to the influence of superstition in general it is however certain that from this period the baron and his adherents became more bigoted to their own systems than before while the terrors of the count's servants increased to an excess that occasioned many of them to quit the mansion immediately and the rest remained only till others could be procured to supply their places the most strenuous search after ludovico proved unsuccessful and after several days of indefatigable inquiry poor annette gave herself up to despair and the other inhabitants of the chateau to amazement Emily, whose mind had been deeply affected by the disastrous fate of the late Marchioness, and with the mysterious connection which she fancied had existed between her and Saint-Aubert, was particularly impressed by the late extraordinary event, and much concerned for the loss of Ludovico, 
whose integrity and faithful services claimed both her esteem and gratitude. She was now very desirous to return to the quiet retirement of her convent, but every hint of this was received with real sorrow by the Lady Blanche, and affectionately set aside by the Count, for whom she felt much of the respectful love and admiration of a daughter, and to whom, by Dorothy's consent, she at length mentioned the appearance which they had witnessed in the chamber of the deceased marchioness at any other period he would have smiled at such a relation and have believed that its object had existed only in the distempered fancy of the relator but he now attended to emily with seriousness and when she concluded requested of her a promise that this occurrence should rest in silence whatever may be the cause and the import of these extraordinary occurrences added the count time only can explain them i shall keep a wary eye upon all that passes in the chateau and shall pursue every possible means of discovering the fate of ludovico meanwhile we must be prudent and be silent i will myself watch in the north chambers but of this we will say nothing till the night arrives when i purpose doing so the count then sent for dorothy and required of her also a promise of silence concerning what she had already or might in future witness of an extraordinary nature and this ancient servant now related to him the particulars of the marchioness de Valori's death with some of which he appeared to be already acquainted while by others he was evidently surprised and agitated after listening to this narrative the count retired to his closet where he remained alone for several hours, and when he again appeared, the solemnity of his manner surprised and alarmed Emily, but she gave no utterance to her thoughts. On the week following the disappearance of Ludovico, all the Count's guests took leave of him, except the Baron, his son Monsieur St. Foy, and Emily, the latter of whom was soon after embarrassed and distressed by the arrival of another visitor, Monsieur Dupont, which made her determine upon withdrawing to her convent immediately. The delight that appeared in his countenance when he met her told that he brought back the same ardour of passion which had formerly banished him from Chateau-le-Blanc. He was received with reserve by Emily and with pleasure by the Count, who presented him to her with a smile that seemed intended to plead his cause, and who did not hope the less for his friend from the embarrassment she betrayed. But Monsieur Dupont, with truer sympathy, seemed to understand her manner, and his countenance quickly lost its vivacity and sunk into the languor of despondency. On the following day, however, he sought an opportunity of declaring the purport of his visit, and renewed his suit a declaration which was received with real concern by emily who endeavoured to lessen the pain she might inflict by a second rejection with assurances of esteem and friendship yet she left him in a state of mind that claimed and excited her tenderest compassion and being more sensible than ever of the impropriety of remaining longer at the chateau she immediately sought the count and communicated to him her intention of returning to the convent my dear emily said he i observe with extreme concern the illusion you are encouraging an illusion common to young and sensible minds 
your heart has received a severe shock you believe you can never entirely recover it and you will encourage this belief till the habit of indulging sorrow will subdue the strength of your mind and discolor your future views with melancholy and regret let me dissipate this illusion and awaken you to a sense of your danger emily smiled mournfully i know what you would say my dear sir said she and i am prepared to answer you i feel that my heart can never know a second affection and that i must never hope even to recover its tranquillity if i suffer myself to enter into a second engagement i know that you feel all this replied the count and i know also that time will overcome these feelings unless you cherish them in solitude and pardon me with romantic tenderness then indeed time will only confirm habit i am particularly empowered to speak on this subject and to sympathize in your sufferings added the count with an air of solemnity for i have known what it is to love and to lament the object of my love yes continued he while his eyes filled with tears i have suffered but those times have passed away long past and i can now look back upon them without emotion my dear sir said emily timidly what mean those tears they speak i fear another language they plead for me they are weak tears for they are useless ones replied the count drying them i would have you superior to such weakness these however are only faint traces of a grief which if it had not been opposed by long continued effort might have led me to the verge of madness judge then whether i have not cause to warn you of an indulgence which may produce so terrible an effect and which must certainly if not opposed overcloud the years that otherwise might be happy monsieur dupont is a sensible and amiable man who has long been tenderly attached to you his family and fortune are unexceptionable after what i have said it is unnecessary to add that i should rejoice in your felicity and that i think monsieur dupont would promote it do not weep emily continued the count taking her hand there is happiness reserved for you he was silent a moment and then added in a firmer voice i do not wish that you should make a violent effort to overcome your feelings all i at present ask is that you will check the thoughts that would lead you to a remembrance of the past that you will suffer your mind to be engaged by present objects that you will allow yourself to believe it possible you may yet be happy and that you will sometimes think with complacency of poor dupont and not condemn him to the state of despondency from which my dear emily i am endeavouring to withdraw you ah my dear sir said emily while her tears still fell do not suffer the benevolence of your wishes to mislead monsieur dupont with an expectation that i can never accept his hand if i understand my own heart this never can be your instruction i can obey in almost every other particular than that of adopting a contrary belief leave me to understand your heart replied the count with a faint smile if you pay me the compliment to be guided by my advice in other instances i will pardon your incredulity respecting your future conduct towards monsieur dupont i will not even press you to remain longer at the chateau than your own satisfaction will permit 
but though i forbear to oppose your present retirement i shall urge the claims of friendship for your future visits tears of gratitude mingled with those of tender regret while emily thanked the count for the many instances of friendship she had received from him promised to be directed by his advice upon every subject but one and assured him of the pleasure with which she should at some future period accept the invitation of the countess and himself if monsieur dupont was not at the chateau the count smiled at this condition be it so said he meanwhile the convent is so near the chateau that my daughter and i shall often visit you and if sometimes we should dare to bring you another visitor will you forgive us Emily looked distressed and remained silent. Well, rejoined the Count, I will pursue this subject no further, and must now entreat your forgiveness for having pressed it thus far. You will, however, do me the justice to believe that I have been urged only by a sincere regard for your happiness and that of my amiable friend, Monsieur Dupont. Emily, when she left the Count, went to mention her intended departure to the Countess opposed it with polite expressions of regret after which she sent a note to acquaint the lady abbess that she should return to the convent and thither she withdrew on the evening of the following day monsieur dupont in extreme regret saw her depart while the count endeavoured to cheer him with a hope that emily would sometimes regard him with a more favourable eye she was pleased to find herself once more in the tranquil retirement of the convent where she experienced a renewal of all the maternal kindness of the abbess and of the sisterly attentions of the nuns a report of the late extraordinary occurrence at the chateau had already reached them and after supper on the evening of her arrival it was the subject of conversation in the convent parlour where she was requested to mention some particulars of that unaccountable event Emily was guarded in her conversation on this subject, and briefly related a few circumstances concerning Ludovico, whose disappearance her auditors almost unanimously agreed had been effected by supernatural means. A belief had so long prevailed, said a nun, who was called Sister Frances, that the chateau was haunted, that I was surprised when I heard the Count had the temerity to inhabit it. Its former possessor, I fear, had some deed of conscience to atone for. Let us hope that the virtues of its present owner will preserve him from the punishment due to the errors of the last, if indeed he was a criminal. Of what crime, then, was he suspected? said a mademoiselle Fédieu, a boarder at the convent. Let us pray for his soul, said a nun, who had till now sat in silent attention. If he was criminal, his punishment in this world was sufficient. There was a mixture of wildness and solemnity in her manner of delivering this, which struck Emily exceedingly. But Mademoiselle repeated her question without noticing the solemn eagerness of the nun. I dare not presume to say what was his crime, replied Sister Frances, but I have heard many reports of an extraordinary nature respecting the late Marquis de Vellori and among others that soon after the death of his lady he quitted chateau les blancs and never afterwards returned to it i was not here at the time so i can only mention it from report and so many years have passed since the marchioness died that few of our sisterhood i believe can do more 
"'But I can,' said the nun, who had before spoke, and whom they called Sister Agnes. "'You, then,' said Mademoiselle Fedieu, "'are possibly acquainted with circumstances that enable you to judge whether he was criminal or not, and what was the crime imputed to him?' "'I am,' replied the nun. "'But who shall dare to scrutinize my thoughts? Who shall dare to pluck out my opinion? God only is his judge, and to that judge he is gone.' Emily looked with surprise at Sister Frances, who returned her a significant glance. "'I only requested your opinion,' said Mademoiselle Fedieu mildly. "'If the subject is displeasing to you, I will drop it.' "'Displeasing?' said the nun with emphasis. "'We are idle talkers. We do not weigh the meaning of the words we use. "'Displeasing is a poor word. I will go pray.' As she said this, she rose from her seat and with a profound sigh quitted the room. "'What can be the meaning of this?' said Emily when she was gone. "'It is nothing extraordinary,' replied Sister Frances. "'She is often thus, but she had no meaning in what she says. Her intellects are at times deranged. Did you never see her thus before?' "'Never,' said Emily. "'I have indeed sometimes thought that there was the melancholy of madness in her look.' but never before perceived it in her speech. Poor soul, I'll pray for her. Your prayers, then, my daughter, will unite with ours, observed the lady abbess. She has need of them. Dear lady, said Mademoiselle Fedieu, addressing the abbess, what is your opinion of the late Marquis? The strange circumstances that have occurred at the chateau have so much awakened my curiosity that I shall be pardoned the question. What was his imputed crime, and what the punishment to which Sister Agnes alluded? We must be cautious of advancing our opinion, said the abbess, with an air of reserve mingled with solemnity. We must be cautious of advancing our opinion on so delicate a subject. I will not take upon me to pronounce that the late Marquis was criminal, or to say what was the crime of which he was suspected. But concerning the punishment our daughter Agnes hinted, I know of none he suffered. She probably alluded to the severe one which an exasperated conscience can inflict. Beware, my children, of incurring so terrible a punishment. It is the purgatory of this life. The late Marchioness I knew well. She was a pattern to such as live in the world. Nay, our sacred order need not have blushed to copy her virtues. Our holy convent received her mortal part. Her heavenly spirit, I doubt not, ascended to its sanctuary. As the abbess spoke this, the last bell of vespers struck up, and she rose. Let us go, my children, said she and intercede for the wretched. Let us go and confess our sins, and endeavour to purify our souls for the heaven to which she is gone. Emily was affected by the solemnity of this exhortation, and remembering her father, the heaven to which he too is gone, said she faintly as she suppressed her sighs and followed the abbess and the nuns to the chapel. End of Volume 4 Chapter 7 